Wyoming's powerful coal industry is starting to feel the full force of the market's decline. Three of the state's four largest producers are now in bankruptcy. Last month, two of the country's largest coal mines, both in Wyoming's Powder River Basin, laid off 15 percent of their workers. And that's on top of hard times in both oil and gas. As the state's energy booms go bust, Wyoming is facing the colossal task of having to replace some or live with less of its main economic drivers. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports from Gillette, Wyoming's coal capital. I met Gail Jap on a gray day in early spring. It's kind of chilly, but this is Wyoming and I like Wyoming. <laughs> She's 64 with blonde hair and bright blue eyes, the kind you keep noticing. Wind ripped across the open prairie as we walked towards her corral. This is money. This is my two-year-old. And this guy, he's just a year old. He's my baby. Jap's horses are like grandkids to her. But for the past few days, she's been preparing to give them up. I've got to downsize, and there's a lot of stuff I'm going to have to sell. So that she'll be able to pay her mortgage. Jap was one of the nearly 500 coal miners laid off recently. Inside and out of the wind, Jap tells me she's just filed for unemployment and has started to look for work. Yeah, I can't leave Gillette, which is really going to make it hard for me to find something. I have responsibilities here. Her 90-year-old dad, young grandkids. So, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's been devastating. I've been in Gillette since 68, so I've seen the oil boom come and go, but it's never been this bad, ever. Now that this first big round of coal layoffs has sunk in, people in the region are trying to figure out what's next. They've lived for decades with a strong economy fueled by energy dollars, a low unemployment rate, and plentiful, well-paying jobs. It is an absolute, complete turnaround right now. That's Carter Napier, Gillette City Administrator. I'm not saying there are no job options here, but I am saying... The, the, the quality of job that they once had. Those jobs, he says, don't appear to be available. Businesses are closing, more homes are up for sale every day. And recently, the food bank of the Rockies mobile pantry, a big truck, came to Gillette for the first time ever. From the coal mines in West Virginia to the oil fields in North Dakota and Colorado, communities all over the country are struggling with the economics of an energy bust. Wyoming has put some funding into diversifying its economy with programs to encourage growth in industries like tech and manufacturing. But thinking about what type of impact you're trying to mitigate when you're talking about a powerhouse like the coal industry for the state of Wyoming is is overwhelming. To understand why this idea is so completely overwhelming, here are some key numbers. The average coal miner in Wyoming makes around $83,000 a year. Overall, the fossil fuel industry, that's coal, oil, and gas combined, employs around 10% of Wyoming's private sector workforce. And revenue from these industries accounts for around 70% of the state's budget. David Bullard is an economist who crunched some of these numbers for Wyoming's Department of Workforce Services. He says energy jobs even affect sectors like retail and food services. And so those people have, have money to spend and and they spend it here in the state, which uh, supports other jobs. 
Reach your hand down in there and get that plug and plug it in. Where do I plug it in? In the light. Nick DeLotte has become right sort of Good a handyman recently. It, he's bought used cars, like this one he's fixing with his son, and he moved his family into an old trailer, which was badly in need of repair. This is his way of preparing for an economic downturn. Good. Now we got new headlights. DeLotte has worked in both the coal mines and the oil fields. He most recently owned a newspaper. He's now running for state office, partially to address Wyoming's economic ups and downs. You know, nobody's really doing anything about it. I, I haven't seen any really good investments in the booms to prepare for the bus. It's, it's like every single time they go, oh, hindsight being 2020, we should have prepared for this. One of DeLotte's ideas? Build a highway to directly connect Gillette with a major interstate, giving the area better access to cities in the south like Denver and Albuquerque. He envisions Gillette as a distribution center and a manufacturing hub, but... And this is a plan for, you know, 25, 30 years in the future. And Wyoming's energy bust is happening now. In terms of a plan for tomorrow and the next day, there's no quick fix. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. There's a polarized debate going on in this country about the future of fossil fuels, specifically coal. And beneath that debate is a disconnect between the people who produce coal and those who consume it. The debate and the divide were very much on display recently at a public meeting in Casper. Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports. Environmentalists, lawmakers, coal miners, and advocates of all types gathered to have their say at the meeting hosted by the Department of the Interior. This is a politically motivated sham pandering to political allies of the secretary and the administration. That's Richard Reavy, an executive at a coal company called Cloud Peak Energy, coming out strong against a review of how coal is mined on federal land. The Department of the Interior is looking at royalty rates, environmental concerns, and coal communities themselves, and holding more meetings like this one across the country this summer. My name's Jeremy Murphy. I come here as a sixth generation coal miner. Murphy moved to Wyoming in 2010 from Kentucky after getting laid off from a few coal mines there. As of the end of March, that region, central Appalachia, lost around 7,000 coal mining jobs in just one year. And so Murphy has a challenge for the environmental groups that want to keep coal in the ground. Take your cell phones, dig a hole with a shovel, put it in the ground. Put it back in the ground because coal made that. Murphy explains that he wants to make the point that fossil fuels are used to produce and power a lot of our stuff. He told me during lunch that this whole public speaking thing is new for him. So I get the sweat beads and get nervous and all that, but I'm hoping that maybe I can make an impression. And get people thinking about who makes their electricity. I, I just, I find it amazing that people don't even do a Google search to see, you know, what happens, what happens when you flip that switch? Where is it coming from? But if you do a search and put that phrase, where does my electricity come from into the website Google Trends, like I'm doing right now, instead of a map of searches by region, you get, quote, not enough search volume to show results. Jessica Smith, an anthropologist at the Colorado School of Mines, is writing about this disconnect between coal miners and everyone else. She got into this kind of work. Because of my experiences growing up in Gillette in northeastern Wyoming in a mining town with a mining family. Smith's basic idea is something she calls an energy exchange. 
For many coal miners, their side of this exchange, making energy for others, is a basic part of their identity. When Smith drove trucks at the coal mines during her summer breaks, miners would talk about their work like this. Well, this truck holds X many tons of coal. Um, that means it can light this many houses for this many hours. But on the other side of the exchange, when people living in those homes flip on their lights, there's little thought given to the miners on the other end. You'd still have to dig further to try to think about what is it like to live in Gillette and what's it like to work in a coal mine. So people have a very distant relationship with the actual sources of their energy. Smith thinks that for a long time, coal miners with steady, well-paying jobs could sort of just ignore this dynamic. But since 2011, the U.S. has lost over 30,000 of those jobs. That, plus environmental regulations like the Clean Power Plan and high-profile, effective anti-coal campaigns, Smith says it can just seem like a lot. When people feel like they're under attack, um, unfairly or, or fairly, right, there's this circling of the wagons, then things end up polarized. We're uh, a keep-it-in-the-ground group. I mean, that, that is our M.O. I met Jeremy Nichols at that hearing in Casper. He's with an environmental group called Wild Earth Guardians, and they are very much part of the polarized debate. But the group has just unveiled a new billboard campaign with a bit of a nod to this divide. The theme? Just transition, which, you know, has two, two meanings for us. A transition away from coal and a fair transition for coal miners into new jobs. Miners have done amazing uh, work for our country for years. They've kept the lights on, you know, to borrow a page from the coal industry playbook. They have. And so I think it's the least we can do to help them. But that help? Coal miner Jeremy Murphy is skeptical that job retraining would even work. And to be honest with you, I don't want to. I love what I do. I, I just want to work. I want to be a coal miner. That's it. It's a debate still playing out here at meetings like this and on the national stage, where Hillary Clinton has pledged $30 billion to help coal communities transition. And Donald Trump has promised to put coal miners back to work. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. The coal industry's recent downturn is casting ripples throughout the economy in the West. In Wyoming, the unemployment rate is climbing faster than any other state in the country. And it's not just miners who are struggling. From a hotel in Gillette, Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce explores the fallout from the collapsing mineral economy. Uh, what time are you checking out for? Uh, let's go. It's close to midnight, but at the front desk of the Oak Tree Inn, Chris Lohman is still checking people in and out. They're like family to me, you know, and, and, and I am to them. The Oak Tree Inn is not your typical hotel. It has private rooms and key cards and fresh towels. But most of the people who stay here work for BNSF, one of the nation's largest railroads. In fact, until recently, those were the only people who could stay at the hotel. It was entirely under contract to BNSF. Because of that, the hotel has some unusual features. Administrative assistant Tammy Burke takes me on a tour, starting with the enormous communal kitchen where the railroaders cook. We don't do their dishes. They have to do their own. <laughs> Through another set of doors, there's a locker room and a gym, both just for the railroaders. There are a few people in the gym and another handful in the TV room. 
But Burke says compared to a year ago, the place is basically deserted. The trickle-down effect has affected us big time. The railroads are hugely dependent on coal. In 2015, shipping it generated almost 20% of railroad revenues. But last year, coal collapsed. And in the first quarter of 2016, coal shipments were down 33%. Thousands of railroad workers have been furloughed or laid off in states like Wyoming and Colorado. Shelley Lively is one of the lucky ones still working. She runs trains from Edgemont, South Dakota, to the coal mines in Gillette and back, and stays at the oak tree on her rest breaks. She says communities rely on the railroad to stay alive. Edgemont's nothing. It's got three bars and a post office. It's going to be a ghost town. Lively says at this point, anyone who hasn't been working for the railroad for more than a decade simply isn't working, unless they're willing to relocate to California or Texas. She points to the hundreds of idle locomotives parked on the tracks outside of Gillette. You'll see miles and miles and miles of engines. Miles of engines. Coal shipments have rebounded slightly in recent weeks, but Lively says it's going to take a lot more to get back to where things were. And she's worried about what will happen to railroad communities if it doesn't. It's affecting everybody, because we're not spending any money. When railroaders don't spend money and the coal guys don't spend money, the economy doesn't move. At the Oak Tree, it means less work for employees. Both housekeeping and the maintenance staff have had their hours cut significantly. Mike Mitchell is a former oil field worker. Now he does maintenance at the hotel. And he says it's a struggle to survive on reduced hours. Pretty much every month have to sell something to make it make ends meet. Mitchell's daughter is heading into her senior year of high school, and he doesn't want to uproot his family. I'd like her to finish here because... She's been here for three years, but if we can't afford to stay, you, you got to go where there's work and, and full-time work. And Mitchell isn't the only one starting to think about opportunities elsewhere. Wyoming has already lost nearly 3,000 service sector jobs in the last year. The tidal wave is just starting. Like many other people in energy towns, Mitchell isn't from Gillette, but moved there for the job opportunities. Without those, he sees little reason to stick around. He started looking at jobs in Denver, where he grew up. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. On April 1st, Frank Thompson lost his job as a mechanic at Peabody Energy's North Antelope Rochelle mine. He was one of almost 500 coal miners laid off that day by Peabody and its competitor, Arch Coal. At the time, Thompson, who's a single dad, was most concerned about what being laid off would mean for his son. You know, he's seven years old, so he kind of sees it as some time to hang out, but I don't think he really realizes that this could be, you know, us moving away from here. Three months later, Thompson still isn't sure what the future holds, but he's trying to stay in Wyoming. Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce caught up with him at a park in his hometown of Douglas. A lot of people don't understand when you're out there, that's your life. And then you get laid off and your whole world crumbles. You don't talk to people that you were talking to for years on end. You don't see your best friend for a long time. I started out there as a wash tech, <laughs> washing equipment. The most miserable job in the world, it really is. And uh, I spent 
three, four months washing the equipment, and then I started fueling, and I was fueling. I fueled for six years, five years, and then I got into the shop and started earning my keep there. And then I got laid off. I was sitting there for a couple of weeks just going, what am I going to do now? You know, I've, I've worked in a area where you can't carry your skills to a different job. I just kind of have to figure out what I need to do. <laughs> to everyone's laying off or not hiring, you know, so really my only option if I want to stay here is try to get a degree. You know, I didn't have an idea what I wanted to do when I went to college the first time. Still don't have an idea what I want to do, but I know I have to do it. So I've been in the real world now. I know what I need to make to live a solid life, and I just need to uh, figure out what I can endure for the next 30 years and go at it that way. He's a great kid, smart, loves it here. And I really don't want to move. He likes it here, I like it here. He has family in this area, so try to stay here as long as we can. I just told him, I go, you know, they just couldn't afford to keep me around. He goes, oh. And I was like, yeah, it was just, uh, they gave me some money to leave, so I left. And he was like, okay, are we leaving? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, are we going to move? And I was like, no, I'm not going to try to move. He goes, good. I don't want to. I was like, all right, good talk. <laughs> you know, he just wants to know if he can keep playing baseball, if he can play football and and that's really all he's worried about which is fine because a seven-year-old that's all he needs to be worrying about he doesn't need to worry about the mortgage or anything like that you know I, I try to tell him that hard work pays off and not to whine and ask for things that you haven't earned and for me to sit here and whine and say that it's not fair for me not to have a job because I don't have the qualifications is wrong I don't have qualifications. That's why I'm going back to school so I can get some kind of qualification. The way I look at it is they did take care of me and I, you know, I have everything I have because they gave me a job. But I also gave them 80 hours plus, of, you know, I gave them seven years. And now I don't have anything to show for it, really. Yeah. So that's how I think of it. They can sit there and tell you how great it is all they want, but when it comes down to it, they take just as much as they give. No one wants to see these towns go away or anything like that, because this is a good place to live. But, you know, if the big picture, the state makes a bunch of money off of those mines, you know, and the state funds a lot of stuff around here. And if they can't do that, then this community is going to go too. And if the community goes, why would I want to stay here? You know, that's, that's kind of the big picture. But for right now, everything's maintaining. Not well, but it's maintaining. I can live with that.
want to live, make sure my son's taken care of and he can get a better education than I can. I just want to work, <laughs> you know? I'm simple. I just want to work. I want to take care of my son. And I want something to do. That's the worst part about being where I'm at right now. I'm so tired of just sitting around. Frank Thompson. That piece was produced by Stephanie Joyce. Music by Chris Zabriskie. Glancing at a satellite image of northeastern Wyoming, you can't miss the coal mines. The square-cornered gray blotches stretch north and south over more than 70 miles. But if all goes according to plan, someday, when the mining is done, those scars will disappear, erased from the landscape by intensive reclamation efforts. Coal companies are on the hook for that cleanup, but the industry's recent collapse has raised questions about whether they will actually come through. How big of a problem would it be if they didn't? Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce takes us behind the scenes of the complex, expensive process of cleaning up mining's legacy. Standing on a platform looking down into one of the three active pits at Cloud Peak Energy's Antelope Mine near Douglas, engineering manager Blake Jones struggles to describe the scale of the mining operations in relatable terms. To that, that bluff over there, it's about four miles. <laughs> the bluff marks the far side of the mine pit. The space in between is just a huge void. The coal seam is at the bottom of the pit, and in order to get to it, a fleet of shovels and trucks scraped away hundreds of feet of overlying dirt. It's hard to imagine this spot ever looking like it did before. But turning away from the pit, Jones points to a grassy hill behind us. We mined through this area three years ago. As in, through the hill. And then they put it back, more or less like it was. You built this hill. Absolutely. Cloud Peak literally moved a mountain. In fact, they're constantly moving mountains. As the mine progresses, the dirt scraped off the coal goes back into the part of the pit that's already been mined. And one truckload at a time, the gaping void is filled. But moving mountains back into place is just the beginning of the reclamation process. The rest, rebuilding an entire ecosystem, starting with the plants. Before we mine, the vegetation studies go through and document what are the native species and what density and what, uh, uh, how many sagebrush per square meter, and literally to that level of detail. And we go back and, and re redo that. There's also wildlife, water, soil, but we'll stick with the vegetation to keep things relatively simple. Where does all this vegetation come from? We uh, buy seed and actually plant it, literally farm it back into, into the ground. In Wyoming, the seed has to come from native grasses and flowers, plants that would have been here before mining ever started. And that's not the kind of thing you can just buy at your local hardware store. So this is our seed barn, what we call the seed barn. The Bridger Plant Materials Center in South Central Montana is one of a handful of plant material centers run by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Together, they're where most of the native plants used in mine reclamation originate. On the surface, it looks like just about any other farm, with guys riding around on tractors in fields. He's cultivating this field of antelope, slender white prairie clover. The center is the first link in the reclamation process. The seed from its fields is sold to commercial growers who then grow their own seed to sell to the mines for reclamation. 
Inside the main office, I meet Mark Majerus, a former director of the center who still volunteers. Majerus says when he started working here in the mid-70s, no one was growing native plants for reclamation. Companies would go out and find a spot, and, and uh, if it was a good seed year, then they would collect it and make that available to reclamation. But hand-picking enough wild seeds to reclaim hundreds of square miles of mine lands wasn't practical. So over the last 40 years, the center has worked to develop farmable native grasses and flowers for reclamation. It's problem solving, trying to figure out what species will work, what species the economics is there so that commercial growers can actually make a living at it. But having the right seed is just part of the equation. Majerus says mining companies also had to figure out the right way to replace topsoil and how to plant the seeds so they didn't blow away. You know, there's the timing, the surface manipulation. If it's really dry, you might want to do some pitting and stuff to create little microclimates. And the mining companies have, have learned this process over the years, you know, strictly trial and error. Today, mine reclamation is much more scientific than it was in the past. And as a result, it fails less frequently. But Majerus says even with all that attention to detail, there's simply no way to artificially recreate the complexity of most native ecosystems. You're, you're not going to put it back exactly as it was. I challenge you to predict what's reclaim and what's natural. Back at the antelope mine, Blake Jones and I are walking through an area covered in tall grasses and sagebrush. You can actually smell the sage. Smells good. Yeah. Watch for snakes, though. <laughs> as good as this hillside looks and smells, it is not reclaimed. Federal mining laws require 10 years of successful vegetation growth and the restoration of groundwater aquifers, among other things. This land, like more than 90% of the land that's been mined in Wyoming's Powder River Basin, is not there yet. In Wyoming alone, the work that's left to be done will likely cost upwards of $2 billion. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. Coal country is celebrating Donald Trump's victory. Support for Trump was strong from Appalachia to Wyoming. And now that he's been elected, people have high hopes he can reverse coal's recent downturn. But can he? Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce reports. Jeremy Murphy listened to the election results on the radio in his pickup truck as he worked the overnight shift at the country's largest coal mine in Wyoming's Powder River Basin. Murphy says everyone at the mine was tuned in on their own truck radios, listening for the results. The two-way radios at work were really quiet, really, really quiet. But when it became clear Trump was going to win, Murphy cheered. He's originally from Kentucky, but moved to Wyoming after being laid off from his coal mining job there. He worried that a Clinton presidency would mean having to move again. We can't live in right Wyoming in a declining coal market worse than what it has been. Nobody can. We would, everybody here would own houses in a ghost town. It's been a rough market for coal recently. U.S. production is down 20 percent year over year. Three of the nation's largest coal companies went bankrupt in the last year, and thousands of miners have been laid off. Like many here, Murphy has faith that Trump can reverse those trends by rolling back environmental regulations. I think we all have really high hopes for what the next four years hold. Louise Carter King is the mayor of Gillette. She agrees. I think he can realistically tell the EPA to back off. 
She wants Trump to kill President Obama's clean power plan, which would have dramatically cut carbon emissions from coal-fired power plants. She also wants him to lift the current moratorium on coal leasing on federal lands. Carter King says she isn't opposed to climate change regulations. But I, I think the way that Obama was doing it was just heavy-handed and... Uh, And it just didn't make sense. Killing regulations like the Clean Power Plan is the main way Trump could help the coal industry. But will it help? I posed the question to University of Wyoming economist Rob Godby. Right. So uh, the short answer is probably not much. Coal's biggest problem in recent years has been natural gas. Fracking has unleashed vast reserves of it, pushing down the price and making it competitive with coal for electricity generation for the first time. And Trump has called for increased natural gas drilling. You know, the inherent contradiction in his policy is you can't put all the coal miners to work when you don't have high natural gas prices. In other words, if Trump wants to revive the coal industry, he needs to shut down the natural gas industry. And that's not going to happen. The energy sector is driven by markets. And Godby says those are hard to influence. President Obama found out it's hard to change energy policy. President Bush found out it's hard to change energy policy. And and President Trump is going to find out that it's hard to change energy policy. But for people like Jeremy Murphy, the coal miner, Trump's promises are their last best hope. And if he fails to deliver... If he doesn't do what he says he's going to do, you know, why are people going to vote for Republicans again? The stakes couldn't be higher for both minors and Trump. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce.